Listener Production. I think the benefit of coming from a totally different industry and re-looking at it through different eyes, it's a really good plan, it's courage. This isn't about taking risks and then them not working out because you haven't thought it through. This is really understanding about where you want to go in your career, where gaps are in the market, where there's areas that can be disrupted, where you can add value to something and where you can make a difference. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. Not many pioneers of the art scene have come from PE teaching, but this is just one of the many hats my guest today has worn in his incredibly varied career. Bruce Peterson is a Melbourne entrepreneur who runs Grande Experiences, which produces large-scale, immersive digital art, culture, science and nature exhibitions that have attracted more than 17 million visitors in 150 cities across the globe. You might have experienced some of his recent innovative exhibitions of Leonardo da Vinci and Van Gogh and Monet. These allow visitors to quite literally step into their works and be immersed in them from a completely different angle than a traditional gallery or a museum. This attitude of enjoying art from the perspective of a normal human has his exhibitions regularly headline some of the world's most prestigious established museums and galleries, including the National Geographic Museum in Washington, Madrid's Art Canal, Russia's Artillery Museum, and the Art Science Museum in Singapore. Today, I want to learn a bit more about why Bruce decided to reinvent his career and what the mindset and actions were on his successful journey to a completely new industry. Bruce, welcome to Fast Track. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Margie. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's start with your career. You started out as a PE teacher and you ended up as a a pioneer of the art scene. This is not a common career (laughs) trajectory for anybody. Can you talk me through how you made this transition and why? Yeah, look, um, it's an interesting one even for me to tell because obviously there's a heap of stepping stones to get to where I am today, to where I was. But absolutely right, I was a a physical education teacher for about five or six years and and realised then that um, whilst I love the kids and the teaching side of things, it it wasn't fulfilling me uh, individually uh, enough. So I decided to exit teaching. To do that, I needed a a pathway out because once you've been a a student, then you've gone to university and you re-enter the education system, it's hard to get out. So I actually um, went and worked for Merck Sharp and Dome, a pharmaceutical company, for about four years. And it was during that time that I I learnt a lot about, shall we say, the outside world and the business world. I think the catalyst, though, was after I realised that wasn't going to work for me, I took 12 months off and I left a long-standing relationship, sold a house, threw the job in, and I travelled overseas at the age of 29. And I went away for that 12 months and visited, I think, 36 countries. And it was during that time I worked out that I wanted a little bit more out of life than what I was currently getting out of life through my 20s. And it was really a process to then work through, well, how do I actually achieve those things? 
And it became apparent that I, I really needed to own and run my own business. So I set up a number of businesses that I ran, some successful and some not so successful, but none of them were really hitting my hot buttons. None were really floating my boat. They were making money, but they weren't giving me what I wanted from a fulfilment side of things. And I really wanted an international business. And um, here we are today with Grande Experiences, uh, which I've been running for 16 years and we've toured now to over you know, 150 cities around the world and it fulfills every, you know, skerrick of what I was looking for in a business, but it it didn't just happen. It was it was crafted, but it was a lot of a lot of work and a lot of making good decisions along the way to get here. So one would always think, oh, he's a PE teacher, so he'll probably go into something related, even into the health field yep. or into yep. facilitation mm. or teaching. You went in to reinvent completely the art world as it was known. So what considerations did you make there? What sort of made your mindset say, I can do such a thing after (laughs) what doesn't feel like a a bucket load of capability or experience in that area? Yeah, look, it's a very, very interesting process because I never imagined I would be where we are today when I first started. But I think the benefit of coming from a totally different industry and re-looking at it through different eyes. Because what I did work out quite early on in the arts cultural industry was, and this is very broad terms, maybe there's 15, 20% of our population are avid art goers, avid museum, um, you know, gallery, you know, connoisseurs, shall we say, you know, aficionados. And then there's this massive gap in the middle who maybe don't go or only occasionally go once or twice uh, a year to uh, some sort of cultural experience. And then you've got, of course, uh, at the other end, 10, 20% that will just never go. It'll never uh, provide them what they're looking for and what they want. But I decided to hit this mass group in the middle with a way to engage them in art and culture that they hadn't been engaged in a style before to get them interested and exciting. And yes, I draw back on my teaching mm. from that because I worked out from a, an early early period in teaching that if I wanted to educate a child, then uh, I needed to engage them and to engage them, I need to entertain them. And so we really introduced a little bit of the entertainment, the movement, the music, you know, and, and everything that a gallery wasn't but still displaying, you know, fine art and telling people a story. And that was really key to it was there's a story to be told that often can't be told through a traditional gallery or traditional museum unless it's done in a way that is often a little bit boring for people or a little bit intimidating for for some people. Well, I know certainly that art has been intimidating for many and that it's not something that's been really accessible to the larger broader population. What was that moment that you said, oh, I'm going to do that? I'm Because I, I might complain about it if I'm in there, but I didn't think, oh, I'm going to change the completely art world <laughs> experience for everyone in the world. That's a big, bold goal. Yeah. Well, and again, I probably didn't realise it at the time, but you're right. And sometimes we're a little bit humble as Australians and we don't give ourselves the credit, but we really have for many, many people around the world, redefine the way art is is viewed. Mm. I ha- actually had a business here which was in high-performance teams and leadership and team building, et cetera, but I saw an opportunity. We put the first experience of Leonardo da Vinci on in, in the Docklands here in Melbourne some 16 years ago, and I wanted to take that a lot further, but to do that I needed to work with 
Italian artisans and I needed to find them in the first place. So I went to Italy and that enabled us to get to get going. So it wasn't hard. Going to live in Italy and enjoying that life and lifestyle wasn't hard, but it was hard to leave behind a business at the time, income to to follow that. Mm. But the aha moment, as I like to call it, is I was um, living in Italy with my young family and I was developing at the time the world's largest exhibition on Leonardo da Vinci, but a traditional style of exhibition. And I'm taking my wife and young children who were six, five and three at the time around these great museums and galleries into the Uffizi Gallery, Vatican Museum, you know, uh, into academia. And within five minutes to a tee, the kids are tugging me on the hip pockets. So, Dad, this is boring. Let's go get a gelati. You know, I want out. And I started to talk to them a little bit about, well, why was it boring for you? What what? What was missing for you or what did you want? And obviously at that age, they found it very hard to articulate. But then one night, one of my kids said, well, it'd be good if it moved because everything's really static. You know, nothing nothing was was moving. And then my other daughter instantaneously said, yeah, and some music would be good, Dad. And that was the aha moment. It was like, you're right. It's a very quiet, at, you know, we're going back 10, 12 years here, you know, 13 years, stayed environment in general. And it was intimidating. The kids didn't like it. They couldn't couldn't talk. They couldn't move. They couldn't interact. It was just, it was really an awful environment for a young person to be in. And then you start to realise, hmm, it's a little bit the same way for a lot of adults. It's intimidating. They don't feel educated about what they're looking at. Therefore, they, you know, think, well, this isn't, isn't for me. You know, and then a lot of exhibitions and experiences are presented by curators who are presenting it for themselves or their peers, not for the visitor. So I was able to really take a step back and look at things from the visitor's eyes, not from my own eyes, not from a curator's eyes, not from a a board's eyes, not from the the donor of the art or any other um, invested person, but from the visitor. And that's how we uh, were able to get to where we got to. And so how do you make that leap? What mindset did you need then to say, oh, I'm putting on one of the largest exhibitions of (laughs) Da Vinci's work, a really amazing feat. However, you then went on to say, I'm going to mix this up. Now, this is not a group of people that you could normally disrupt. I know there's lots of people who've tried. How did you go about it and how did you use, what thinking did you have and what did you actually have to do, resources and support to make this happen? The vision was there, but we didn't have the resources and the, the knowledge or the technology to actually carry it out. No one had ever done this before. So it actually took us two years to work out how we created a 1,500 square metre environment with 30, 40 projectors, screens, um, a stable operating system, sound system, and put on a experience that would be stable and run for three or four months all day, every day, um, without us having to be there because that, that would have made it uneconomical. And then there was the challenge of actually creating the content itself because no one had done that before. And when you were looking at 30, 40 projectors and each one of them have 40, 45 minutes of content, it was 30, 40 separate pieces of content, if you like, by 45 minutes. Huge undertaking and really the key, I had a couple of really good people that I just empowered to share, you know, share the vision and let them, you know, create and have faith that they could do it. Yes, it had to be funded and yes, it had to be resourced, but ultimately I can't do a lot of the things that our company does 
I need really good people to do those things, but I need to provide them with the environment and the tools, the encouragement, the inspiration, the shared vision, you know, all the all the usual cliche things, but they are very, very true to to fulfil what was ultimately not just my dream, but became theirs as well, because they could see it was going to make a difference. And I think that was the other key driving point for myself and the few staff that I had at the time was we really felt we were making a difference. We were bringing art and culture to a group of people that normally wouldn't engage in art and culture or did infrequently, and they were being entertained and they were being educated and a person left our experience an hour after being in there better for it. And that was a real driving factor and still is today. And it sounds to me, as you talk about this, Bruce, that it's deeply inclusive. Yes. It's not an exclusive club of art lovers. It's really about accessibility. And I've experienced an immersive art experience and I like them both, but I know that there are so many people who are getting access to the Grand Masters through this experience. I wonder what influence, you know, you believe the Grande Experiences has had on the art world? Um, Look, I think we have been at the forefront. We have been the pioneers of the movement from artefact-based exhibitions with a piece of interpretive information and an object under a glass case or a painting on a wall through to multimedia. And now we're very much in the multi-sensory field. So what we are really doing now is looking at all the human senses, so your kinesthetic sense of space when you walk into an environment, your visual, your audio, your aroma, taste even, and coordinating all these together. And when they all come together in synchronicity, you get an amplified outcome. And often that outcome's emotional. And when we touch someone emotionally, you leave an impression. And that's what we're trying to do is is Mm. create emotional moments for people with art and culture because a lot of it is really emotional. It's very emotional for the artists that actually created the artwork in the first place. But sometimes that's very hard to transfer across to the ordinary person that really doesn't quite get or understand what they're looking at. I was just thinking of, as you were talking about, a, a streeton and being able to smell the eucalypts or whatever it might be as a deeply immersive experience. Well, I mean, we're some of the world's leading experts in Leonardo da Vinci. And of course, the Mona Lisa is an integral part of, of Leonardo. It's it's his most famous piece of art, but it's probably arguably the most famous piece of art in the world. And the Louvre Museum is really built on that piece of art. And I don't mind saying that. It's, it is its number one featured possession, uh, the French government. And Nine million people a year pre-COVID would go to the Louvre and they'd race up to the second floor and they'd run into the room, which has the Mona Lisa, and they'll see it from afar and go, ah, is that it? Well, that it was a really, really underwhelming experience for people. And all the Louvre gives people is La Gioconda, Leonardo da Vinci, 1503 to 1506. In our Leonardo da Vinci exhibition that we travel around the world and we also own a museum in Rome on Leonardo da Vinci, we have a 300 square metre area dedicated to the Mona Lisa 
from the work of a French scientific engineer who studied the Mona Lisa with the Louvre's permission, took her out of her frame, developed the world's most uh, powerful multispectral camera, was able to photograph her from infrared to ultraviolet, discovered 25 things about the Mona Lisa that the world didn't know, spent two years then with the curators of the Louvre verifying these things. That should be on display in the Louvre, but we display it. And the Louvre doesn't display it because they have a mandate just to show the original piece of art. But the piece of art on its own doesn't doesn't inform people about why it's special. Mm. And so where it gave us an opportunity to do that outside of the Louvre. Now, you know, obviously we're not the size of the Louvre and people coming to visit it, but people that leave our experience walk away with an understanding of she's not just someone that's that's a tiny little postage stamp and, and not that attractive. They get why it's such yeah. a fantastic piece of art. Bruce, tell me about the Louvre in Melbourne. Where did the idea come from to open a permanent digital art gallery space? You're back here now in Australia and you're opening this permanent digital art gallery space. (laughs) Tell me a bit about that and the inspiration. Sure. Probably six, seven years ago we we wanted to open up a permanent uh, attraction where we could rotate the content that we produce ourselves and we always wanted to do it in Melbourne in our home city. For those that live in Melbourne and would know that that real estate can be very hard to get hold of, especially a large building that we need, because they were getting turned into apartments before they even hit the market. So we found it very, very difficult to find um, a a venue, Um, but we're also distracted with what we were doing overseas. So we were you know, very, very busy in touring experiences in in all the different countries. And, And I never really... Uh, put the time and effort that I needed to into moving that vision ahead. And then the one opened up in Paris, uh, Tellier de Lumiere, which really gave me the kick up the backside that I needed to say, we should have been the first to do that. Uh, we weren't, but that's okay. Let's now you know, get to and build this in uh, in Melbourne. So it's been a four-year journey to get to where we are in Melbourne. We'll open on September 1. We're housed inside the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. We've taken over permanently two, two large bays and we've been doing an enormous um, fit-out, about $15, $16 million fit-out with 150 really high-definition projectors, a big mezzanine area. Our first experience will be Vincent van Gogh and everything is themed around Vincent so that everything fits into the theme of France and Netherlands. Uh, France, of course, where he painted most of his works, Netherlands where he's from. But what's been challenging is we haven't decided to build one of these. We've been building two simultaneously through COVID over in the Indianapolis Museum of Art. So this is the first time anything like this has now been built inside a traditional art institution. So when you draw back to how have we influenced the arts world, well, there's your complete full circle that that the a major institution in the United States has seen the value of what we do to bring in new audiences and be more inclusive to a greater section of their population than what they are traditionally displaying their original uh, but it has been quite a challenge, I can uh, I can assure you. <laughs> it does certainly sound like a grand scale and something that I hope that I get down to see. I want to bring us back to career now and I, I really want to ask you about any tips that you might have for people who are thinking, gee, I, I want to make this leap. I want a completely new career. I want to reinvent myself. And I'm just curious, what are your tips for people in their thinking, what do they need to do? 
What do they need to feel to really be able to reinvent themselves? Um, look, it's a it's an excellent question. It is different for everybody. You know, many could look at what I've done and say, well, you know, that, that was fine for you, but I've got a mortgage or I've got young kids or I've got, you know, a, a high-paying job, I can't leave, et cetera, and they're blocks and barriers. But what I worked out while I was away that a, a huge percentage of the population float through life or life takes them on a journey that they don't necessarily control. I liken it to a leaf in a stream that, that wherever the stream takes them, that's where they they go. I went a little bit different and said, I'm going to try and control where I go in my life by making decisions and putting things into place to get from A to B to C to D to E and what I need to do along the way. So there's a very strong plan behind that, but it was a plan that was crafted from trying to understand myself deeply about what I wanted out of life and then what I needed to do to create that. And in short, it's a really good plan. It's courage. It's not false courage. This isn't about taking risks and then them not working out because you haven't thought it through. This is really understanding about where you want to go in your career, where gaps are in the market, where there's areas that can be disrupted, where you can add value uh, to something and where you can make a difference and where you can change people. This isn't, for me anyway, it's not about selling widgets or or doing um, a, a business that's just the same as what someone else has done. I needed something that would drive me through those very, very long hours at night, weekends, but it also hit all my hot buttons and floated my boat, so to speak, on that pathway. But it was having courage of conviction is probably the the biggest thing. Well, it's an amazing story and we've only really just touched on a few parts of it, but enough for us to know that the art world is a different place because of you and because of your dream and your courage. And I just want to thank you so much, Bruce, for joining us on Fast Track today. Thank you, Margie. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, producer Tina Matalov, audio production by Darcy Thompson, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.